Welcome to Grace Toronto Church. We are glad that you are here, wherever you are in your, in your journey of life and faith. We are uh, glad that you are on the journey with us this morning. We are returning to our series in the book of Exodus. When we last were in it two weeks ago, Moses was a baby in a teva, a little bulrush-created boat rescued by the Pharaoh's daughter. The sovereign silence of God. Today, we have the sovereign appearance and speaking of God. We are flashing forward now. Moses has grown up. He, uh, he grew up in the Pharaoh's household. He was 40 years old when, as a son of Pharaoh, he intervened in a dispute between an Egyptian and an Israelite. The Egyptian was beating their Israelite slave. Moses killed the Egyptian and then fled to a semi-nomadic tribe named the Midianites outside of Egypt to escape the repercussions. And here now, 40 years after that death of the Egyptian, we find Moses still shepherding in the wilderness. And we pick up the story in Ephesians chapter 3, and here to read for us is Shen. Today's scripture reading is taken from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Did the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you, bring my that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain." Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, 
I am has sent me to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is a passage about God, about God as He is. Few passages convey as much information about God as this one. If you are wondering what it would be like to meet God for the first time or to reconnect with God, this is a great passage for you. If you are looking to grow deeper in your faith walk with God, this too is an essential passage for you. Because here, Moses meets God for what appears to be the very first time. It is his conversion story. It is also our revealing story about the essential nature of God, our covenant Lord. For here, in the third chapter of the book of Exodus, we see illuminated the glorious essence of God in all of that glory. Here we see the covenant God of Israel, the covenant God of you and me and all of His people. And here we see too many things to talk about. I will simply land on three. Here we see that this God is revealed as the holy God. This covenant God is revealed as the God who comes near. And this covenant God is revealed as the God who sends. He is the holy God, the God who comes near, and the God who sends. We will look at these. Firstly, He is the holy God. As I said, Moses here is a full-grown older man. He is living with the semi-nomadic Midianites. He is married into a Midian family. He is now 80 years old. He has been shepherding for 40 years. God seems to have gone silent on the Israelites, and God has sent Moses out of Egypt, and the action. God seems sovereignly, cruelly silent. But then Moses sees a bush that is burning and not consumed. Moses looks at it and is curious. And then God calls out to him, Moses, Moses, and he says, here I am. And then God says, take off your sandals, for you are on holy ground. Men and women, boys and girls, this is how God presents himself to us first. This is him in his fundamental essence, holy. The cherubim saying, holy, 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 when God was revealed to Isaiah for Isaiah's first time in Isaiah 6. Holy is how God introduces himself to Moses for the first time. It is only after he says, I am holy, that he says, I am the covenant God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it says here that Moses hid his face. And I submit to you, so should he. And so would you and I. Moses was afraid. Men and women, this is the God who is, and there is no other. He comes to us here as he comes to Moses in his essential holiness. He comes as God as he is in himself. God ase, God 
not dependent upon his relationship with us, God not in relation to us, but in relation to himself. He is the infinitely holy one. Stephen Charnock, the famed Puritan theologian who wrote The Existence and Attributes of God, the seminal treatise on God's nature, puts it this way. God possesses a perfect and unpolluted freedom from all evil. Men and women, God is pure in the purest sense of that word. He is free from any evil and wrong. Charna continues, as sincerity is the polish and luster of every grace in a Christian, so is purity the splendor of every attribute of God. His justice is a holy one, justice. His wisdom, a holy wisdom. If every attribute of God were a distinct limb of His body, purity would be the soul and spirit that animates them. But there is a particular implication of God being holy, isn't there? And Moses is confronting it in this story. God hates evil and wrong. God loves good and purity and love. Psalm 5.4 says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell within you. In Habakkuk 1, verse 13, the prophet says, Your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Moses is experiencing a collision between God's holiness and his own inner nature. And in his own inner nature, he finds no holiness. And that collision is terrifying. Does it frighten you? It should. What we have lost in our culture is any sense of the fearfulness of God, any sense that meeting God might be traumatic or dangerous to us. Men and women, I do not use these words lightly. Meaning God, if you do not know Him personally, according to this passage, is all of these things and should be so. Because we are not holy. We are filled with selfishness, self-absorption, sin, evil, cruelty. We are. Look at the news. Try to deny the Christian belief that humans are inherently bent toward their own self-interest. Try. Look at the news. G.K. Chesterton once commented that the doctrine of original sin is one of Christianity's most controverted, which is hilarious because it's the one proven every day in the news. Sinful and selfish you and I are. And when the holy comes into contact with that which is unholy, it is normal that fear and guilt and shame should arise because in that moment of meeting God, you are meeting Him as He is and you are seeing yourself as you really are. You will see and feel the infinite love He has for all things good and the infinite hatred He has for all things sinful and wrong and selfish. And you will know immediately, viscerally, powerfully, existentially, even emotionally, that that wrong is in you. And He sees it in you. That's why when Jesus says something in Luke 12, we ought to listen. I show you whom you should fear. Fear Him who after your body has been killed has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. 
Jesus here is not talking about what Christian theologians call the fear of God. We will talk about that in a few minutes. He's talking about something more basic, visceral, but equally essential, being afraid of God because He is holy. Men and women, boys and girls, when all you have is you and your moral resume to confront God in all of His holiness, it will get you nowhere. For God is holy. His, in, His holiness is infinite. His hatred of wrong and evil, which He sees in you, is infinite. His call for you to love Him and love others with all your heart, mind, and soul is right and good and just and will not be taken away from you. That is His standard. Who can stand before that judgment? None. No one can. Romans 3 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Ephesians 2 says, we all in our natural state are by nature, and I quote it, children of God's wrath. Moses felt that at that moment. He felt his sin and wrong, and so should we all. God is holy. And if you do not know him personally, and all you have is you, to confront him with, with nothing to cover you, you should feel afraid. So implications. If you are here and you do not yet know God personally, I say to you, this is an essential step for you. Sooner or later, your spiritual journey will move from an intellectual inquiry as to whether God really exists into an existential journey into what it might mean to know the God who does exist. It becomes personal, real, ethical, relational. And at some point, this must dawn upon you. I look in the mirror, and I don't even live up to my own standards, much less those of an infinitely holy God. How then can I relate to Him? I need help. That is the healthiest place you can get in your spiritual journey if you are not yet a person who knows God personally. If you do know God personally, this is actually an essential reminder for you that the God whom you know has not changed. Though you know Him and you experience His grace, His holiness still abides. His hatred of sin is still constant. His hatred of your sin is still infinite. I quote Charnock again because he puts it so well. Discussing God's attitude towards sin that resides in Christians, he says this, a gardener of a garden hates most the weed that shows up in the part of the garden where the choicest flowers lie. A man may love one of his limbs, though it is shot through with disease and gangrene, but he loathes the disease and gangrene in it. God loves you if you're a Christian. He does. But he hates the gangrene and the cancer that is sin in our lives. Like festering garbage, like a malignant tumor, he knows that if it is left there, its poison will spread and begin to take all of you. So if you are a Christian, Don't listen to the city of Toronto. 
But make today garbage day. Make today the day that you look at the garbage, call it for what it is, repent of it, call it wrong, and turn away. Take out the garbage. Now, can you? Yes, you can. Why? Because the God who is holy is the God who comes near in grace and mercy. It says here, after he's told him to take off his sandals, he has said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. In the sovereign silence of his seeming lack of care, he has seen and he has heard. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up. I have come down to bring them up. This is why the meeting is happening, says God. I have seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry. I know their affliction and their sufferings. Men and women, the God of covenant is a God who comes near. He hears our prayer. He knows our afflictions. He sees our injustices. He knows our groaning and our cries. This slavery, this oppression has been going on for decades. It seemed as if God was asleep, but he was not. In his sovereign silence, he was seeing, hearing, and preparing to come down and to deliver. He cared, and he cares. His silence was not the silence of absence, but the silence of sovereign wisdom and love and the ordering of all things for the manifesting of the brilliance of His grace and mercy. We do not know the beginning from the end, but we do know that the ultimate purpose, we do not know the ultimate purpose of everything, excuse me, but the all-wise, all-holy covenant God does, and that God hears. That God comes down and acts. Men and women, there may be no greater words in the entire Bible, no words more paradigmatic, more template-creating than these words, for in these words, the whole of the gospel story is prefigured, like, like the seed of a tree, which will eventually become a mighty oak. This has all of it in it. I have come down to deliver and bring them up from their slavery. Where? To security and flourishing in their own land so that there will be a permanent end of slavery in another land, of being exiled, so there will be a beginning of an inheritance. This is the language of a holy God who is becoming the Father God of sinners and self-absorbed people and making them His sons and His daughters. Why? Because that's the very nature of your covenant God. He is the infinitely gracious and forgiving God of the covenant. Moses had sinned. Every Israelite was, like you and I, filled with selfishness, pride, self-absorption, ambition, other darknesses. This is true of us. This is true of God. And this is true of the story of the gospel. God has mercy upon people despite their sin and evil. God rescues people from their slavery even if it be self-imposed. God always comes down in holy mercy, always comes down to save His people. That was true then. It is even more true now. 
For we know in the progress of history 1,500 years later, a second Moses would come. But this second Moses was actually God Himself come down. Because 1,500 years after this event, God came all the way down. Not just to communicate with His people in a burning bush. Not just to commune with people in a glory cloud, but to become one with us. God would come down and become human and become a baby and become vulnerable and dwell with us and share suffering with us and decay and disease with us because we call that the incarnation. God came down in His Son Jesus. Why? Because God saw you and I in our own slavery. A slavery no political exodus could free us from because it's a slavery to our inner selfish ambition and selfish nature, to our own sin, the slavery that makes us afraid of God. You see, the Bible says we are slaves to sin, left to our own human nature. We can't stop doing it. We can't stop being selfish. Everyone who commits sin, Jesus said, is a slave to sin. And that slavery doesn't make us slaves to Egyptians, but it makes us slaves to sin, and it makes us slaves to the one who controls this world, the devil. He becomes your master. The shackles may look pretty. They may look like a mansion in Rosedale. They may look like a Porsche in the driveway. Pretty they may be, but shackles they will be. If you do not find freedom from your own inner sinfulness and selfishness in God Himself. You see, the guilt of sin alienates us from a God who is holy. And it makes us want to hide from Him. Adam and Eve hid from him after meeting him when they had sinned. Moses hides his face from God because he knows he's a sinner. Sin makes us hide from God, makes God alien to us. Sin makes God angry. He he abhors sin. He hates it. But he loves you and I. And so he came down like you and I. And became one with you and I, but without sin. And he did not hide his face from sinners, but embraced us in love and patience and kindness. And he did not hide his face from God, for he had no sin that separated him from his Father. And then willingly, this God-man, this mediator, paid on the cross for our sin. He became a curse for us. For there is no distinction, says Romans 3, 23. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, but we are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ who was put forward by God as an atoning sacrifice by His own blood. We are about to see in the Israelite story that they will be delivered as God promises here through blood. The blood of a sacrificial lamb poured out, that life of the lamb poured out, the blood of the lamb sprinkled on the doorways of the homes of the Jewish people. God will then come in executing judgment. The angel of death will pass over all of Egypt. But he 
He will take the firstborn of the Egyptians. He will pass over the houses that have blood sprinkled upon them because the sacrificial lamb covers the sinfulness of the Israelites. And the Bible says that Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. His blood is attributed to every Christian. His blood covers them from the judgment of a holy God. There was a man named Howell Harris whom almost none of you have heard of, but he was one of the leaders of the Welsh Methodist movement in the revivals of the 18th century. He had gone to church most of his life like Petro. He had wandered from God, not become a Christian. And then later on, as a young adult, he wrote these words, I felt suddenly a strong inclination in my mind to give myself to God as I was, to leave all and follow Him. I was made willing to say goodbye to all things temporal and choose the Lord for my portion because I was now quitted at the bar of His justice and acquitted in my conscience. This evidenced itself by peace and joy in my soul, watchfulness, hatred of sin, and the fear of offending my God that followed from this conversion. Do you see? By faith he grabbed hold of the grace that is offered in Jesus. By grace he was able to finally know that he was covered so he could look at God without hiding. He could look at God without being afraid, but he would look at God with awe and wonder and he would feel as Howell Harris feels, a hatred of sin and a fear of offending that God. If you do not know God personally, I need to tell you, you are not as free as you actually think you are. You are free to follow your desires, but your desires are bent towards self-actualization and self-promotion. Your desires are not as free as you think they are. They do not bend you to go to God and give your life over. And your freedom alienates you from a God who has called you to live in dependence upon Him. But God has seen the lack of freedom that you have and the guilt that you have and in compassion and love and mercy, He has come down to you in Jesus and offers you to Him today as a gift for you to take. I say to you, Take the gift. Experience the freedom. Let the shackles be broken. Ask Jesus to come into your life and he will forgive your sin and he will break the power of slavery. Come to Jesus for freedom. And if you do know God personally, I say to you, firstly, rejoice. This has happened to you. You are free. The guilt of your sin has been paid for by his precious blood. The Spirit of God has come in, into you and broken the power of sin to captivate you. Rest. Take rest. You are forgiven. He has come down and freed you. Take heart. God hears you in your afflictions. Your prayers do not bounce up against the silent ceiling 
of a God who does not hear. When you struggle with your relationships and your family, the holy God is your holy Father now. He hears. When you struggle with mental health and stress from work, He hears and He knows. When you struggle with the brokenness of this world, thank you, Chrislin, for praying for the brokenness present in so many. Infertility, miscarriages, deaths of children, family in the Middle East, cancer in you or your loved ones, God hears. He is not silently not listening. In His sovereign silence, your Father is hearing and listening and caring. Take rest, take heart, but keep watch. To fear God is not to be afraid of God, but to acknowledge this God is holy and yet is infinitely gracious and has sent His Son, like Howell Harris, to fear God is to keep watch over your soul and to fear offending Him who has died for you, given His life for you, paid your debt, and promised your inheritance. He's the holy God. He's the God who comes near. And finally, He's the God who sends. In verse 10, he says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh. <laughs> he's way out in the Midian. He's probably out on the Sinai Peninsula, which is part, he's probably where the northwest part of Saudi Arabia today. He's pretty far from Egypt. He's out in a very desolate place. And he says, I will be with you, but you go to Pharaoh. Moses says, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. I'm not adequate. Ever felt that way? Welcome to being a Christian. God sends Moses here. God, the covenant God, always has a role for His people who are made in His image. He gives them the divine dignity of spreading His love. It is the greatest, most purposeful work imaginable. It is of far more profound and lasting significance than anything we do on this earth. If you can extend the reign of love that Jesus established to others, you are doing something that will last for all eternity. Behold the God who is holy, 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 who comes all the way down and becomes the, the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, who dies on a cross and then stands before you and says, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And lo, I am with you to the ends of the ages. God said to Moses, I will be with you and I am sending you. God, the great I am who I am, who reveals his sovereign divine name to us. I am who I am, says go, I will be with you. Jesus in John 8, 58 says, before Abraham was, I am. He names himself as the God of the universe, and he dies as the suffering servant and atonement sacrifice for all, and he rises, and as the risen I am, he says, go, I am sending you. Do you feel inadequate? Moses did. Does God do great miracles through Moses? He does. 
Does God do great miracles through ordinary people like you and I? He does. Why? Because he is who he is. He who has promised to be with you is the holy God who created the universe. He's the great saving God who saves people from every tribe, tongue, and language. Take rest. Take heart. Take watch. And go. And give him glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace. Help us now, we pray in Christ's name, to encounter you anew as holy, to rest in you anew as gracious, to watch over ourselves and take out the garbage and be willing to be sent as witnesses for you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for sharing today and preaching with us, uh, preaching for us today, Dan. Uh, we have time for one question at this moment. Okay. Um, most of the questions uh, here actually pertain to uh, somewhat of this passage, what you're preaching today, but also some things going on around the world. And so yeah. I'll ask the one question. And, uh, Shocked I am. Hopefully it will summarize, you can summarize some things for us and help us understand. Uh, what is the church doing to rise up in opposition to the senseless killings that's been taking place over the past two weeks in Gaza? Sitting in church this morning, reflecting on what, for the most part, our first world problems seem so disjointed from what we all should know is going on in the world outside our safe bubbles. Can we please, as a church, recognize and pray for the dead and dying when global catastrophes happen? Um, Can I see that? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Thank you. Um, so this isn't really a question, it's an advocation. It's advocating for something, yeah? Yep. That we do something different than we're doing, yeah. And the other messages are similar. <clears throat> so, you're asking for me to comment on the Israel-Hamas conflict, and you're asking me to take sides, depending on your own political point of view. We have differing points of view here. We have people who are zealously pro-Palestinian and anti-Israel, moderately pro-Palestinian and anti-Israel, moderately pro-Israel and anti-Hamas, although I don't know any pro-Israel, and then rabidly pro-Israel and possibly even anti-Muslim. I decry any racism against it, both Jewish people or Muslims in any of your political points of view. Racism is simply wrong and anti-gospel. I sympathize with the two sides, the Palestinians and the Jewish people, the Israelites, because they both have historic claims to this land. Israel was driven out by imperial powers centuries ago. Palestinians lived semi-nomadically in Israel for centuries before post-World War II and the pulling out of Britain and the United Nations allowing them to, Israel retook the land. It is a long and historical argument of great complexity. And there are errors on both sides. We long for a peaceful solution. Hamas did not provide a peaceful way forward in what they did. It was brutal, evil, and wrong. 
Israel's response, I don't know where it's going to go. I hope it ends soon. I do not want them to respond with evil for evil. That is the danger that is presently before us, and we should pray against it. We also need to recognize that what is going on here has larger geopolitical implications. Part of the reason that Hamas is doing this from all intelligence reports that I've been able to tell is that behind the scenes, Israel was about to normalize relations with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is a rival with Iran for principal influential power in the Middle East. Iran did not want Saudi Arabia to normalize relations with Israel. Iran is a resolute enemy of the existence of the state of Israel. Iran's clearly and historically known to have funded Hamas. Hamas is known to not have wanted these normalization talks either. We don't know if Hamas got those ideas themselves or if they got them from their Iranian compatriots and funders. But you begin to see the intensity of the complexity of all of this. There is sin and wrong and ambition all over it. I refuse to make simple black and white declarations over really complicated geopolitical situations that are filled with gray and black, sin, territorial ambition, racism, proper grievances, not so proper grievances. I don't have the historical knowledge, I don't have the uh, geopolitical training or insights or intelligence briefing to really know exactly why people are doing what they're doing and what is happening. So I'm going to take the position of intellectual modesty and say, I can't make pronouncements. I can say this, we need to pray. This is super complicated. So yes, we probably should have had prayers for this situation. And I will end with a prayer for it. But you also seem... You've seen us if you've been here before. We ask lay people to pray so that lay people can be meaningfully involved in the life of the church. And, and yet this kind of task, praying appropriately for this kind of thing is extremely, extreme. I don't feel competent to do it well. I don't feel that any of the elders feel competent. And I really wouldn't want to put it on a lay person. So the, one of the reasons why we haven't prayed for it yet is simply that we don't want to put a weight on our people that would be too hard for them to bear well. I don't think that's fair as a leader of a church. I don't think it's fair as a pastor who doesn't have enough training in the Middle East and all of the historical things to be able to say something that's wise other than I don't know all of it and that's the wisest thing I can say but I'm praying because there's all, I know there's all kinds of ambition and sin and stuff around this. You see, Israel and Hamas is a very, very complicated, long-standing thing. And my heart breaks. My heart breaks for the Palestinians right now as my heart broke for the Jewish people when Hamas broke in. My heart just breaks. I hope your heart breaks too. I hope this is, I hope this is an acceptable solution for you because we want to be a reasonable, thoughtful expression of the gospel. And in a geopolitical thing like this, it's just really hard. So thank you. Yes, we probably should have said something earlier, but we have also experienced the failure of saying something too early. When the George Floyd killing happened, we spoke and we got clobbered by you for not being thoughtful and informed enough. And you were fair to say that.
we're at the same place in this one, which is at least or more complex. So I grant your grace for us as we pray, and I ask for you to pray for peace, for the light of the gospel to go forth, for imperial ambitions and dark competitiveness to be removed, for racism to be removed. But I also pray for you to recognize the complexity and not move towards simple black and white, social media-driven solutions. I've seen them everywhere. They're driving me crazy, and I'm not even knowledgeable enough to be driven crazy enough. Does that make sense to you? This is hard. This is tragic. This is dark. Let me pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you. Help us in these great moments of darkness to recognize our own sin, our own brokenness, sometimes our own collusion with evil because we just don't care. Sometimes we have to admit our fatigue because we just don't have enough capacity to find out enough to care wisely. We're broken. We're finite. We're sinful. We really need you to come. We need you to intervene in the Middle East in ways that we have never seen. And so we pray for that. We ask for peace. We ask for respect and citizenship and rights for the Palestinians, respect for the existence of the state of Israel, and we ask for peace in the region. And we ask for peace in the hearts of everyone through knowing you. In Christ's name, amen.